millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. Sadie Carpenter, cult expert, is here with us today. And as always, my name is Gabrielle Hakoen. Hello there, Gabby. I am cult expert Sadie Carpenter, and I am really excited for our episode today. If you tuned into last week's episode and you're expecting to tune into us today and hear us talk about Ginger Duggar's book. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but it's not out yet. Uh, either it got delayed or we got the date wrong or I, I don't know what happened. But uh, Or we're living in the Matrix. It is, it's very confusing. We scheduled to talk about her book like literally months ago because we thought the release date was January 23rd, which would have given us a week to put together an episode on it. And I think the book is now supposed to come out on the 31st. So we're... <laughs> we're very confused <laughs> we will be re- reviewing and talking about ginger's book as soon as it is available we thought it would be available now it is not that's true but don't worry because today we're talking about something dare i say equally entertaining which is i think it, it, it's it's like the fundy version of astrology oh that's a hot take the fundies claim to hate superstitions i've even heard preaching against any kind of superstition and uh things that are new agey or magical that's all considered demonic including astrology but for all of that they're pretty superstitious themselves and they go extremely hard for numerology so today we're talking about 
the numerology specifically as it relates to the Bible and proofs, um, quote unquote proofs. You just imagine scare quotes under around all of every time I say proof in this episode. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> supposed proofs of the King James Bible status as the only true and correct translation. It's a fascinating topic, and I can't wait to talk to Sadie about it um, because it, she has so much amazing insight into this topic that is it's just so loony yet so fascinating but before we get into that the leaving eden podcast is the podcast about my bff and co-host sadie carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental baptist cult the cult in which she was raised we talk about this cult we talk about other cults we talk about religion we talk about fundamentalism we talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole and it is our goal to promote freedom of mind freedom of thought and freedom of religion so if you like our show if you're a fan of our show there's a few things that you can do you hit that like button or that subscribe button on this podcast and it will make sure that you get the new episode every monday right when it comes out and also it will make sure that our podcast gets suggested to people who listen to the same other podcasts as you because they might like it as well and that helps us grow our audience um and it'll it'll help us in the algorithm so that'll really that'll be really great uh you can join our patreon patreon.com slash leaving eden podcast uh where you will get access to an extended and uncensored and advertisement free version of most of our podcast episodes um, and yeah, you can find that at, at patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast. And you can join our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. Is there anything else that we need that you want to plug before we get into this, before we talk about this? Uh, I don't think I have anything at this, at this point. <laughs> oh, I have something. If you are hearing this episode on January 30th, this coming Wednesday, February 1st, I have a gig that I am playing. Um, I am, it's, it's nothing crazy, nothing special, but I am playing, uh, I'm, I'm headlining an open mic at Patty Wax, which is an Irish pub in South Philly. And, and it's, it's a nice place. You can come and you can hear me play music for 20 to 30 minutes, uh, mostly music that I wrote, if you're interested in that. But yes. I think now is it's time to thank our faith promise missions. And I gave it all to your patrons without further ado Our I gave it all to your patrons are Kathleen Moncrief and Melissa Mosley. I'm so excited that we have two. I gave it all to your patrons because that is two people with whom I can soon share the extremely sus outtakes reel that we have recorded recently um, that, that I've, I've been piecing together lately. Um, the fun thing about me is that uh, I forget things after I say them if I'm not paying attention. So when I listen to the Faith Promise Missions outtakes reel, it's as if I'm hearing it for the first time. Yes. It's very fun. It is very fun. And then you listen to that. You're like, oh, I said that. Oh, mm. <laughs> so very. No, usually I listen to it and I'm like, no, that's on brand for me. Yeah, uh, that's coming out soon. Uh, when whenever I get around to actually uh, putting that together and uploading it, I've amassed enough material to put on another one. Though, um, what was the so first one like twenty something minutes long? Yeah, the, the first one it wasn't that long, but it was it was just funny stuff. The and that's for our I gave it all to your patrons. They're the only ones who we let listen to that. Um, but our faith promise missions to your patrons. Your names are Alex Todd, 
Allison MacArthur, Anisha Patel, Brittany, Brooke Tully, Krissa, Crystal Patterson, Dear Ethan Hansen, The Musical, Eleanor Donahue, Elizabeth DeWorth, Emery Fairlosser, the OG Emery Fairlosser, Hannah Ross, Hope Norum, Horton Hears a Shane. I'm just here to send Sadie true crime podcast suggestions, a.k.a. Meg. Janine Collin. I wonder if Janine Collin is at all related to uh, Lance Collins, a.k.a. John Todd, a.k.a. the Grand Druid Priest of, of, of all the witches in America and the guy who visited JFK on his yacht after he had been supposedly assassinated. Um, so if Janine, if you're at all related to John Todd, a.k.a. Lance, Lance Collins, please let us know. A.k.a. Chris Ryan Collins, <laughs> a.k.a. <Yeah. laughs> right, that guy. We have Jen Kaharski, Jessica Tambo, Tambo like Rambo, Jonna, Jonathan Miller, Kay Terwee, Kristen Marie, Lauren Vanderwall, Linda Morgan, Lindsay Goss, Lorena Watson, Michaela Upright, Madeline Antrim, Marlena Stuve, Mary Williams, Mary Martin, Megan Arendt, Miranda Day, Rebecca, Rob the Methodist, Sarah Reese, Scooby Sleuth, Stephanie Johnson, Susie, Tara McNamara, the Lady Rabbi, part of the clergy crew, Tiffany Enderby, Walnut, son of Walnut, Wendy Dalton. I wonder if Wendy is related to Timothy Dalton, uh, former uh, James Bond actor, which would also be fascinating. And as always, we have Wes the Cowboy. Thank you so much to all of our faith promise missions. And I gave it all to your patrons. You guys are amazing. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I did want to add on to the um, Lance Collins, a.k.a. John Todd uh, train <laughs> that you were on. There, There is another of Jack Chick's sources that I really want to do an investigation into soon. That would be, is that the guy who I'm thinking of? The guy who claimed to be a bishop or a, a priest? Yeah, that guy. Priest, yeah. Oh, man. Okay. That's going to be fantastic. I'm really excited for that. Into today's episode. Uh, actually, say, did you want to hit us with a content warning? And then yeah, we'll. Absolutely. Uh, in general, we talk about a lot of potentially triggering topics on this show, including but not limited to suicide and mental health, racism, misogyny, PTSD, and PTSD symptoms, child abuse, mental, physical, and sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we'll mention at least a few of these topics, but we try to avoid graphic detail unless it's relevant to the story we're telling on that day, and we do our best to give the audience a heads up before we go into any detail if it does happen to be relevant to that day's story. In this episode, we're talking about biblical numerology. We are not talking about uh, end times prophecy at all today. I mean, we um, mention it, I think. Well, we will we'll mention like, uh, oh, you know, so in this this person used this particular Bible code to predict the end of the world, but it didn't happen. Or this person used the Bible code to predict that Trump would win in 2020. So we're talking that kind of thing, but we're not getting into the book of Revelation numerology. I promise. <laughs> uh, I can't think of anything else that would be particularly triggering in this episode, except for Similar to our King James episode, I'll be reading a little bit of scripture, not nearly as much as I did in that episode, and we will be talking about like scripture verse 
numerology and gematria and that kind of thing. So late last year, uh, late in, in 2022, I think we came out with it in December, uh, we made an episode about why Christian fundamentalists believe that the King James Version is the only legitimate version of the Bible. And basically, what it boiled down to is, among other reasons, uh, like because it's not Catholic, because it needs to be, and because the Bible says so. Of course, right. those were, yeah, I mean, those were all scare quotes, uh, theological proofs. Today, we're going to get into areas that are, if you can believe it, far less coherent. I would say less coherent, but more fun. But maybe that's just me. <laughs> so growing up, I only heard preaching about these supposed numero numerological proofs of the King James Version's perfection and Bible codes very occasionally. This was like like a ice cream at the end of dinner for me as a kid growing up. I would go to church and this was what I was hoping would be the topic. Like I always went to church and I was like, oh man, I hope it's about prophecy. I hope it's about end times. I hope it's about Bible codes or I hope it's about the occult. And th that was like, or like rock music. That was what I always wanted to hear about in church. Those were the things that interested me the most. And looking back, that's extremely on brand for the person I grew up to be. <laughs> Those are like the, that's kind of like low key, like the, the cool though. Yeah. You know? Like, uh, like I, I, so I know in the past we've referred to, I've, I'm mostly me. I've referred to various things as uh, quote unquote Christianity fan theories in a I, sense. Yes, that, you've said that a few times. Yeah. Uh, recently in the past few episodes, it's come up several times. I say that in the sense that there, there are theories about like. They, they they almost feel like, you know, when people are coming up with theories about what's going to happen in the next uh, a George R.R. R. Martin book. I think the, the way that you described this when we were talking about doing the episode was, oh, this is like if God put Easter eggs in the Bible. Yes. <laughs> and that's that's exactly what this is. It's a natural extension of the belief that God is omnipotent and omniscient and the Bible is a not just a accurate translation, like the, the Bible in English is not just an accurate translation of the Word of God, but that the King James Version specifically is a perfect translation inspired directly by God who supernaturally made it perfect. Speaking of things that are conspiratorial Christian fan theories, before we get into what the fundies do believe, I want to talk about the Da, Vin the da Vinci Code. So, Gavi, are you familiar with the book or the movie? Yes. I've never read it and I've never seen the movie, but I, I'm, I'm familiar with it, it with its existence. It doesn't have the reputation of being great literature, but it's supposed to be quite exciting and fun to read. Yeah, it's a, it's a mystery thriller. Fun fact, the first time I saw the F word in print was in this book. Did you know what it meant? No. Um, also had no idea how to pronounce <laughs> it. Did you have to go and, and, and like ask? No, I like, I, this was obviously a swear word and I had heard like references to the F word. So I kind of put two and two together. I was about 16. So I was old mm -hmm. enough to like put two and two together and I'm like, oh, this must be the mythical F word. But there, who was I, who was I going to go ask? I had checked out this book from the library secretly 
because this was <laughs> not, this was something the fundies were really mad about and I was not supposed to be reading it. So I definitely couldn't go ask anybody about this. Um, and then I had to get real, real serious at the next church camp cry night over having read it at all. Well, your ancestry is Scottish, right? You have Irish, Scottish, Welsh. Um, mostly Irish, Scottish, Welsh, and then a lot of other random 2% this, that, and the other thrown in there. So you could say f or you could say f and it would be uh, like culturally <laughs> accurate. Sure. Well, thank you for letting me know how to swear without cultural appropriation. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't be cultural appropriation. <laughs> so, <laughs> so for anyone... <clears throat> <coughs> Sorry, I'm trying to... <laughs> so for anyone else who is not familiar... The Da Vinci Code is a novel that was made into a movie in 2006. It's about an occult researcher, historian, like a nerdy Indiana Jones type kind of. He gets on the trail of finding the Holy Grail. And along the way, he solves all these cool puzzles while uh, meeting the, you know, the girl who is, you know, she's the girl in the adventure novel. That's, you know, the guy's going to get the girl at the end. Uh, very tropey, but fun. Yeah, he's protecting her and he's being pursued by a group of people who are trying to protect the Holy Grail from being found. Spoilers for the end of the book and the movie if you haven't seen it and plan to. At the end of the story, the researcher learns that the Holy Grail isn't the cup that Jesus drank from at the Last Supper at all. It's actually the human body of Mary Magdalene, who was actually Jesus's wife and lover and bore him a child. And then there are descendants of Mary and Jesus's child still alive today. I think this is um this is very much a pastiche of multiple conspiracy theories that are old, old, old. And Dan Brown has done a really fun job of weaving together these multiple threads of old conspiracy theories and making them into something that's that's entertaining. I think what's of value in the book it, it's it's entertaining. Um it's not a theological tome and it's certainly not meant to be. The the impression that I got was that it's very national treasure-esque. Mm -hmm. In that it's a fun movie but it's not based in reality or it's like have, have you ever played the video game Assassin's Creed? Uh, no, because that, like, first-person games make me motion sick, but my husband has played Assassin's Creed and I was present. Yeah, if you liked National Treasure, you'd probably love this. Of course, the fundies were extremely pissed off about this book for a lot of reasons, the main one being the fact that it says that Jesus was not divine and that Jesus had a wife and a child. Similar, of course, to the reasons why they hate Andrew Lloyd Webber. So I think that anyone who was around Christian culture around the time that the movie came out definitely heard about this. How you heard about it and what you heard would depend on what group you were in at the time. The IFB, along with other conservative and fundamentalist groups, of course, just wrote this whole thing off as heresy and as proof that the devil is working hard to deceive people into thinking that Jesus wasn't divine and the IFB take in particular was Satan is using the evil Hollywood people 
to lead unsuspecting Americans away from believing the gospel. This is a big move for Satan, and that would tell us that the end is near because Satan is bringing out the big guns uh, by putting this kind of blasphemy on movie screens. So this is definitely something you'd hear preached against. Absolutely. Uh, Less fundamentalist churches took a very different tactic. Some churches even saw the popularity of the book and the movie as a good thing. Like, this is an opportunity for us to have conversations about who Jesus really was and what he means to us. A LA Times article that I read said that one pastor was giving out pairs of tickets to the movie to his congregation. So he would tell each person in the congregation to get a friend who's not a Christian and go to the movie. And then after the movie, sit them down and witness to them and tell them what you think the movie got wrong about Jesus. I guess they, they the reaction to this book would be similar to how they would have treated Harry Potter, meaning that there would have been a range of opinions about it, but mostly negative. Yeah. And among fundamentalists in particular, the reaction to this and the reaction to Harry Potter are very similar. It's absolutely not. This is just proof that Satan is trying to steal our children, or this is proof that Satan is trying to steal our beliefs and prevent people from knowing the real Jesus. This is the same line that you will hear fundies use against tarot or astrology or anything, crystals or whatever it is that they believe to be new agey or spiritual or a use of divination. Even things that are not really directly connected to the new age movement, but are more ancestral for the people that would typically be a part of the IFB, like uh, water dowsing, for example. Oh, looking for for uh, 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 wells, right? Yeah, the forked stick thing. Um, even things like that or practices that would be practices that are not commonly done within any kind of new age or magic, modern magical movement that would just be something that like your great grandma did. And then now you're an IFB church member and she probably was too, but she didn't see that as magic anyway. Any of that kind of stuff is applied to that same logic of, oh, this is just another way that Satan's trying to get you. And I did hear preaching against superstitions growing up, like regular stuff like being afraid of the number 13, which I think is triskaidekaphobia, uh, being afraid There's of There's a name for that? Yeah, pretty sure it's triskaidekaphobia. Huh. So here's where the major irony comes in. Fundies are very much not fans of the Da Vinci Code. They're against horoscopes, tarot, psychics, uh, all of that. But many fundies and many IFB people in particular will use the Bible for divination and try to find secret meanings in verse numbers or in how many times a particular word was used in a particular passage. And while that is only accepted by some, I'd say less than half, independent fundamental Baptists, practically all of them are totally fine with using numerology related to the Bible as proof that the King James is the only inspired version of scripture directly from God. Like It's like biblical backwards masking almost. Like they're looking for secret messages. It's the, it's the same thing. Right. So... If a band uses song titles or track numbers or backmasking 
to create a hidden meaning. Or, you know, if the IFB retcon a band song titles or track numbers or play a song backwards to find a hidden satanic meaning that the band never actually intended to be in there, that's evil. That's Satan. But if you do the same thing with the Bible, that's proof that the Bible is truly the word of God. So, to be clear, (laughs) this isn't something that the entire IFB embraces. I think less than half use verse numbers or other numerology or codes to find, like, letter codes that I'm going to explain to you, to try to find secret knowledge or predict the future. I would say that a solid, conservatively, 75% or more are totally okay with the numerological proofs of the King James. The the people that are into this are, like, hella into it. So we briefly mentioned a few of these numerological proofs in the original Why the King James episode. I want to dig into some of them and see what the fundies are on about here. So one of the big ones uh, is the verse Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7. Uh, It reads, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. This is one of several verses that are used in the circular logic that two of the major IFB beliefs, biblical literalism and biblical inerrancy, depend on. So the circular logic is as follows. The Bible is true because the Bible says that the Bible is true, and there must be one perfect translation of the Bible in English because the Bible says that there is one perfect translation of the Bible in English. So what does the phrase purified seven times mean? Literally, this verse is making a metaphor about the refinement process of silver. How that was done at this point in history is that silver would be melted in a furnace, any impurities would float to the top, and then would be skimmed off, and that would be done over and over and over again until what was left behind was closer to pure silver or hypothetically completely pure silver. I am not sure how perfect the refinement process was in the Bronze Age or Iron Age, and I did not feel like going down yet another rabbit hole for this episode. (laughs) So the phrase, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever, is the part that applies to the circular reasoning of there must be one perfect translation in English because the Bible says that God's words will be preserved in every generation. The phrase purified seven times is where the weird numerology comes in. So the IFBs have adopted a system of biblical numerology in which they assign certain meanings to commonly repeated numbers in the Bible. I'm sure that you, as well as most people who have read a good bit of scripture, have noticed that certain numbers tend to come up more often. I think 3, 7, 12, and 40 would be the most common. Yeah, I'd also put 5 and 10 Mm -hmm. in there as well. And Jewish numerology is very much a thing. Just the idea that certain numbers have a connotation beyond the literal counting sense. I think the most commonly known example of this is the number 18 being a stand-in for the word high, which means life. So if Jewish people are donating money to a charity or something, they'll do it in multiples of the number 18 because that's mm-hmm. just considered like the the thing to do. It's culturally the thing to do. I'm also thinking of the number five 
I remember talking about this when we did our episode where I visited High Holidays Services with you, and I could be getting this wrong, but I think five is associated with redemption. Yes. Mm -hmm. Also worth noting that there are five books in the Torah, which chronicle, uh, of course, uh, Torah chronicles the formation of the world, the foundation of the nation of Israel, uh, their exile, their enslavement, their deliverance from bondage and uh, their reception of God's law, and then their journey back home, which in many ways, in fact, the Torah very accurately reflects the narrative arc of the hero's journey, which is a fun fact. Yeah, so the number five is associated with the Torah. It's associated with a redemptive journey or the completion of a redemptive journey, and that makes sense. So the IFB have adopted their own system of numerology. Some of it is borrowed from Jewish numerology. Some of it is taken from other cultures. Some of it is native to Christianity. Some of it is an invention of modern Christianity and the resurgence of biblical literalism in the last century. The reason I wanted to point out that there are significances to certain numbers in Judaism is that because while the IFB take it way off the deep end, as they do with most things, a number having significance in a religion is not at all unusual. The The issue is that I think the IFB appropriated this from other cultures and then also just kind of made up some of their own meanings and then really ran with it. We'll get more into this as we go along because... I think it would bore our listeners if I just read off a bunch of numbers, but I, I'll post a chart on the social media for this episode. <laughs> Some things that are highly significant to the IFB, though, are the numbers 3, 7, 12, 40. The first time any particular thing is mentioned because first fruits belong to God. A few other things that feel pretty Eurocentric, such as the middle verse of a particular chapter or the middle word of a particular verse or the middle letter of a word. It just so happens that in this system of numerology, one often symbolizes God, three represents the Trinity or salvation, six is the number of man or humans or humanity, and then one plus six is seven, so God plus humans. Uh, seven symbolizes something that is perfect or complete. And then eight is the number of new beginnings because that's what comes after completeness. So to finally answer your question, <laughs> the IFB believe that purified seven times in Psalms 12, Psalm 12, 6 and 7 is a secret message from God telling the good fundies of the 20th and 21st centuries that there is a Bible in their language that is perfect. And the reason that they think that applies to the King James Version is that the IFB say that the King James Version was the seventh major Bible translation in English. The way that they count that is, this is copy-pasted from that. You remember that website, the Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Precious website? Oh, do I remember that website? (laughs) This is from that website. Burned into my mind. (laughs) So the way that they count the seven major Bible translations is as follows. The Tyndale Bible, the Coverdale Bible, Matthew's Bible, Great Bible, Geneva Bible, Bishop's Bible, King James Bible. So the IFB believe that this 
this phrase purified seven times is not only confirming the second half of the verse that God's word will be preserved for every generation, but is also confirming that since the King James is, according to them, the seventh, quote, major translation in English, the King James is that perfect, purified, preserved word of God. But the King James Version, as we discussed uh, at great length in our uh, previous King James Version only episode, the King James Version was not made from those translations and distilled from them to be more accurate. It was another one that was done from scratch after all of those had already been done. Right. So that is one of the major problems with this. There are a few. (laughs) But you're correct. The King James was not a purification or a refinement of any of those translations. After all, that is one of the major legs that King James Version Onlyism stands on to begin with. We know that the King James was heavily influenced by the Geneva Bible. But like you said, from a technical translation standpoint, it was a complete redo from scratch. Of course, being able to say that your translation is the word of God purified seven times. That sounds pretty flashy. Yeah, it does, except for by their own logic, it doesn't work. One of the other issues is that their count is ridiculous. Their count of major English translations of the Bible completely leaves out the very first complete translation of the Bible into English, which is the Wycliffe Bible. Really? And the yes. And I know we talked about him in the in the King James Version episode. I'm sure we did, because the IFB include Wycliffe in their list of the brave heroic men who defied the evil Catholics to bring the Bible into English. So although his tra- his translation wasn't inspired by God, they still see him as a hero because he was trying to do the right thing. So I would say by any standard, the very first complete translation of the Bible into English should be considered major. So the purified seven times thing would then mean that the Bishop's Bible is actually the seventh one that was purified seven times, and then the King James is number eight, and therefore doesn't fit with this verse. Well, that would make sense that the that that one's purified seven times, and then King James is number eight because eight symbolizes new beginnings, and King James was started from scratch. See, they could right. have used that. But they need it to they need it to match with purified seven times. Uh, so they leave out a translation that's important to the other half of their reasoning of why the King James is the only good translation. Uh, right. But of course, none of these translations, they can't be considered the complete word of God if they're not the King James, because if it's not an every word Bible, it's a no word Bible. Right. And only one thing, obviously, can be an every word Bible. So they don't consider any of these previous six or seven, depending on how you count them, quote, major translations to be the complete and inspired word of God. So why are we even bothering counting them, even if you were going to count them correctly? Because the King James wasn't purified from them. It wasn't. It's just. Yeah. And we're going to talk about the, the school of thought that treats 
everything in the Bible as a potential prophecy or as a potential hidden prophecy down the road, I would point out that in this particular passage, the IFB has just kind of decided that it's prophecy. I read the context of the whole chapter, Psalm 12, it's only, I think, seven is the last verse, so it's very short. There's nothing that indicates that that chapter is meant to be prophecy in the context. The only thing they're going on is the phrase, thou shalt, referring to something that God will do in the future. I would argue that stating that God is going to do something that logically God would be doing anyway does not count as prophecy. (laughs) Furthermore, the version of the King James that the IFB use is not what was put on paper in 1611. Wait, what? Yep. What? I thought that these people, these people literally base everything in their lives around King James 1611. Like they'll literally name their church 1611 Baptist Church. Mm-hmm. But very few what? IFB churches actually use the 1611 King James. Most of them use the 1769. Let me see what mine is. Pulled mine off the shelf. Let's see. Mine is in Nelson, so I'm assuming it's the 1769. So there have been three major revisions to the King James since 1611. Uh, The year two were in the years 1629 and 1638. And then there was an additional revision of the 1638 text by Cambridge University in 1760, and then another one by Oxford University in 1769. The Cambridge and the Oxford revisions uh, overlapped in time, and people tend to count those as one revision. The Oxford edition is the one that became much more common, and since my high school King James that I'm holding is a Nelson Bible and I read on the Thomas Nelson website that the 1769 was better. I'm assuming what I'm holding is a 1769 Oxford edition, even though it doesn't tell me on the cover. To be fair, most of the changes between the 1611 version and the 1769 Oxford edition, most of them are in spelling, punctuation, and word tense. Yes, But if it's not an every word Bible, then it's a no word Bible. That's what they say. So let's dig deeper into this. The article that I'm using for a source for the following segment is a letter from a King James Version only advocate named Scott, who wrote in response to scholar Daniel Wallace uh, and some comments that Mr. Wallace had made about the King James. And then Mr. Wallace responded to Scott. It's linked in our sources as uh, changes to the King James Version. So Scott, who did not provide a last name, accused Daniel Wallace of overstating the total number of changes between the original 1611 King James and the modern King James that is printed and used today, like the one I'm holding, which was printed in 2005. Daniel Wallace supported his statements by illustrating every single change between the 1611 and a modern printing using a passage from 2 Samuel. He went through, I think, all of 2 Samuel 12, like verses 20 to 31. I have it written down somewhere. I'm just going to tell you about one verse for the sake of time here. But 2 Samuel 12, 20 reads, 
Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he came to his own house, and when he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. In this particular verse, no words or word order were changed. In the original 1611 King James, apparel was spelled as A-P-P-A-R-E-L-L, and own was spelled as O-W-N-E. So the final L from apparel and the E on the end of own were removed from the modern King James Version. In the original King James Version, a semicolon was placed after the word house. That semicolon was replaced with a comma in the modern King James that is on bookshelves today. Wallace identified 38 similar changes, uh, no changes to the meaning at all, but a total of 41 spelling and punctuation changes in the passage, 2 Samuel 12, 20 to 31. So 41 spelling and punctuation changes in 11 verses. However, this is massively important. As you may remember from our previous episode, Matthew 5.18 is used as one proof text for why there has to be a preserved perfect translation. Matthew 5.18 reads, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Jots and tittles are Hebrew punctuation marks. And yes, the IFB uses this to claim that the punctuation in the King James is divinely inspired. Obviously, this is a logic problem because there are actually thousands, if not close to 100,000 places where spelling or punctuation was changed between the original 1611 King James and the 1760 or 1769 Cambridge or Oxford editions that are printed and used today. Is it or is it not an every word Bible and a jot and tittle Bible? Is it or isn't it? Huh. Okay. <laughs> wow. So a smaller number of the changes between the 1611 and the modern editions of the King James are in word tense or word style. So towards becomes toward 14 times in the text. Burnt becomes burned 31 times in the text. And lift becomes lifted 51 times in the entire Bible between the, seven, the 1611 and the 1769. I would ask you, are burnt and burned the same word? No. They are not the same word. They also have a different number of letters. Burnt has five letters. Burned has six. Are lift and lifted the same word? No. No. Also, lift has four letters and lifted has six put a pin in that. A smaller number of the changes between the 1611 and 1760 or 1769 editions were in word order, which is more serious, I think, to the IFB even than a spelling or punctuation or word tense change. Some examples, in Genesis 22, 7, the original 1611 said, had the phrase, and would, in in modern editions, it is and the wood. And then in Romans 6, 12, rain, therefore, in the original 1611, was changed to therefore rain in 
more modern printings. I'm actually gonna look up that Romans verse because I just wanna I just wanna look at it. It's neat to to be able to hold it in my hands and see it. Yeah, Romans six twelve. Uh, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. So in the original 1611, it would have been, let not sin reign therefore in your mortal body. So these changes were illustrated by Scott, the King James Version only advocate in the exchange that I was referencing previously. Another change that I found in an article by Thomas Nelson Publishers was in Matthew 13, 6. The original 1611 King James contained the phrase, had not root. But in the 1769 revision, that phrase is changed to had no root. And again, I would ask you, are not and no the same word? No. No. Not? They're not. (laughs) And do they have the same number of letters? No. No, they do not. Scott goes on to declare in this uh, email or article exchange that I was reading, in all caps, that the King James you could purchase today is, quote, virtually identical to the King James that was printed in 1611. But virtually identical is not the same thing as identical. Now, is it, Scott? And and I ask once again, is it an every word Bible or not? Because you're 1769. If it was a 1611 that was purified seven times, your 1769 has now been purified like what 10 times that ain't the one sadie would you like me to tell you what i learned about this oh yeah absolutely um as our listeners know i live in philadelphia pennsylvania i live about three blocks from independence hall and so whenever a friend comes to visit me i take them to independence hall i take them to see the liberty bell um and the declaration of independence I was talking to a park ranger in the museum room where they keep the Declaration of Independence. Uh, We were discussing the differences in spelling of certain words between the Declaration and the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution and and why the words are spelled different, even though they were all written, you know, around the same time within like a decade or, or two of each other. What he told me was very interesting. What he told me was that Spelling wasn't actually standardized until the 19th century. Furthermore, until spelling was standardized, it was considered to be a mark of low intelligence and near illiteracy if you only knew how to spell a word one way, because how words were spelled and how punctuation was used was often a stylistic choice by the printer, by whoever was printing what it was that you were reading or whoever was writing down what it was you were reading. So if you only knew one way to spell a word, it meant that you only got your information from one source or one publisher. Huh. I had honestly never heard that before. Yeah. And I think that's fascinating to think about. So think about this like today. Say you have a right-wing uncle who gets all his news from Fox News and Facebook and doesn't go outside of the conservative media ecosystem. Imagine if you could determine exactly that about somebody just by the way they spell the words that they use. (laughs) And it goes further than that. Yeah, imagine if you could tell what town somebody is from because the way they would spell a word in their town's local newspaper 
was spelled, uh, you know, a certain way. And then they spelled it that way. Or you could tell where somebody went to school because they would spell or punctuate in a certain style that was associated with a certain university. Or you could tell what somebody's political ideology was just from reading an unrelated work email. So if somebody used different spellings for the same word, as would happen in the same letter or in the same text or, or document, it was a sign that this person reads things from many different places and of many different opinions. And that's how it used to be before spelling was standardized. And I find this subject fascinating. So carrying on that logic, thank you for telling me about that, by the way. I honestly did not know that, and I'm so glad I do now. I thought that you would really get a kick out of knowing that because I was like enthralled to learn about that. And that's it's so cool. But if we put that back into the conversation about the King James, there were dozens of translators who were some of the most educated people in Europe at the time who worked on this translation. So it totally would make sense that the spelling wasn't standardized. So from anyone other than the IFB's perspective, the fact that the spelling and punctuation and pluralization of words, and very, very, very occasionally word order, was changed doesn't invalidate the translation. The the accuracy or the respectableness of the King James translation but the IFB just decided to shoot themselves in the foot on this one for no apparent reason. Right. So the fact that the spelling in the King James isn't homogenized is more to do with the fact that the people translating it came from many different places and they were well-educated people. But these are things we already knew. Of course, the direction that the fundies take this actually weakens the argument for the King James being a good translation of the Bible. But of course, their argument isn't that the King James is a good translation of the Bible. Their argument is that every letter of the every word of the King James Bible is exactly how God want it to be. Even the spelling mistakes that are there are there because of being there intentionally. And there's a special secret meaning behind it. It's like, you know, with, with like horseshoe theory or, or donut theory, but they're so like into anti-intellectualism that it becomes pro-intellectual you know what i'm saying yes so if the ifb argument was the king james version says exactly what god wanted to say but in english this would still track this would still match with that assertion it only doesn't match because they say the King James's word for word, letter for letter, punctuation mark for punctuation mark exactly as God intended it to be. If they just said it's exactly what God wanted to say, it would be fine. I would add that this is illustrative of the IFB's views on the meaning of perfection and the attainability of perfection. We talked a little bit about the idea of Christian perfection in the Calvinism, Calvinism episode a couple weeks back whether it is attainable and whether a Christian is obligated to attempt it. And the IFB view is that we are obligated to attempt to be perfect, although we know it's an impossible task, and true perfection only comes from God, period. Humans can have, can rarely have purely good intentions 
but humans can never have perfectly moral actions sustained throughout their entire life. So for the Bible to be an every word Bible, it has to be perfect. And true perfection only comes from God as a source. So God had to ordain and set up only one absolutely perfect Bible. And then they've painted themselves into a corner because now they are stuck with the King James and they have to defend their support of the King James to the point of heresies and idolatry because of the corner that they had painted themselves into. Man, I guess it goes to show that the line between taking a principled stance for a value or a concept that you believe in and buying into all sorts of like nonsense to a point of insanity. Yeah, but to call back to the philosophy that we got a little bit into in the Calvinism Calvinism episode, it's my opinion that taking a principled stance and finding where your values lie and digging into the details of that is still an extremely worthy pursuit. That's something that I do choose to spend a fair amount of time on in my life. But it's clear, like you said, that pursuit does lead easily into buying into all sorts of nonsense. I feel that I like standing at the top of that slippery slope, and I believe that I have friends who are going to grab my arm if I start sliding down it. But speaking of sliding too far, I think this is a good time to go take up the offering, and when we come back, we can dig into more supposed numerological proofs for the King James. That sounds fantastic, and I'm really excited to do that. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, that group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. We're back from the break. Uh, we just talked about Purified seven times. Sadie, what are we going to talk about now? So I chose to spend a lot of time on the Purified seven times thing because that's the most commonly accepted numerological proof for 
the inspiration of the King James. And I think that's an important foundation to understanding the IFB belief on that. But that verse is far from the only supposed numerological proof of the King James supremacy. So I want to dig into something called the Hoggard Bible Code. Oh, God. I am well aware of the Bible Code. I've, I've seen this. Okay, so what Bible Code are you aware of? Because I think there was a book mm. by that name that came out shortly after the Da Vinci Code. Is that what you're referencing? So I don't know. I've because I, I didn't know there were different kinds, honestly. I've seen <laughs> Bible code claiming to predict 9 11. I've seen Bible code claiming to predict the 2008 financial crisis. I've seen Bible code uh, claiming to predict the election of Trump. It very much reads like the, the, the Pepe Sylvia meme from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Okay. So trust me, we are going to get into what you just referenced, but first we're going to do the IFB-approved version of that. And I'm, I'm going to explain where they get some of those predictions when we get there. It's very um, Nostradamus, sort of. <laughs> but before we get to that, the Hoggard Bible Code is a publication by Pastor Michael Hoggard, who apparently pastors Bethel Church in Festus, Missouri. This was personally like a trip for me because I looked up this church since this is in the region where I grew up. And I'm like 90% sure that I've been to this church at some point. Really? It could just be the other 10% is maybe just all Baptist churches in Missouri look exactly the same. So I'm not sure. But the church website says that it's a free will Baptist church. So it's not IFB. Well, obviously, they're also not Calvinist. Fun fact. <laughs> Free will Baptists are specifically anti-Calvinist Baptists. Their beliefs would be extremely similar to the IFB. On a quick Google, the only difference I found is that Free will Baptists are not as committed to church autonomy, and they do have a formal denominational structure, which, of course, the IFB is very much against. But other than that... They would be almost identical in practice and beliefs to an IFB church. So it seems that Pastor Hoggard has been at this Bible coding thing for over 20 years. I don't know, and I wasn't able to figure out whether he originated the IFB system that I grew up using and being familiar with, where certain numbers have a significance or a meaning. I highly suspect that he did not originate this. He just uh, expanded it. But what Hogger did do is some extensive counting of the number of appearances of certain words in the Bible, and then he would tie the totals that he got back to the IFB-approved system of certain numbers having significance and an expanded system of significance of numbers that he appears to have come up with. And then from that, he will draw the conclusion that the King James is perfect because no human author would be able to put in that many Easter eggs and make a system this complex work. So that's proof that not only did God inspire the scriptures, but that he also put his stamp of approval on the King James. So how does this work? So Hoggard takes a number. Let's go with, let's just go with what he says about the number three. So the number three in the numerological system that the IFB use is associated, obviously, with the Trinity, also with resurrection, because it was on the third day that Jesus was resurrected. 
also, it also ties back to like the story of Jonah, where Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, which is meant to predict Jesus because Jesus was in the grave three days and three nights. The term, okay, so Hoggard takes this association with the number three from being associated with the Trinity, being associated with resurrection, being associated with baptism because you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is three things. Yeah, but that's just the Trinity. Right. You can say it's the Trinity, but then you can just say, well, you use the Trinity in baptism, so autom- so baptism equals Trinity. That's Right. Okay, so these are associated mm-hmm. topics, and they're, all, they're associated with the number three in Christian numerology. So then Hoggard will go up, go and look up all these topics that have something to do with the Trinity or resurrection. The term Trinity does not actually appear in the King James. In the King James, the wording is Godhead. But Hoggard found out that the term Godhead, referring to the Trinity, appears exactly three times in the King James Version. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. So... By the way, I'm going to give you a lot of these examples. I went through and fact-checked everything <laughs> that I'm going to mention here. So you can see how he he like he's going to pick out dozens of examples like that that support his claim, and then someone who already believes that the King James is perfect would feel like their belief was validated and supported by this. Like, oh, Godhead means Trinity and it appears exactly 3 times. That's pretty cool. So since three is also associated with resurrection, baptism, and rebirth, Hoggard ran a search on the phrase born again, which also happens to appear exactly three times in the King James Bible. The phrase resurrection from the dead also appears exactly three times. He also searched rise again, which appears nine times in the King James New Testament, nine, of course, being the square of three, three times three. So all of this has extreme significance as long as you are operating under the assumption that anything to do with the number three is automatically related to Jesus and the Trinity. Yeah. So you're thinking God, if, if God truly not only wrote scripture and inspired scripture, but also helped or inspired regardless of how you look at it, the the King James Bible translators, then God chose every word that shows up in our King James Bible. God would have been able to put in Easter eggs for us in the King James Bible. So the absence of these Easter eggs wouldn't prove that the King James was incorrect. It's just that the presence of them is uh, confirmation bias. It, it activates people's confirmation bias if they already believe that the King James is perfect. So the the belief isn't the King James is true and inspired and perfect because the numerology works out. The A better way to phrase the belief would be this numerology is additional proof that God inspired the King James and God left these Easter eggs to reaffirm us that we made the correct choice in believing that the King James is the inspired, preserved word of, word of God. Yeah, but that's circular logic. What's him? What, yes. Like, what's to stop him? Yeah, like, what's to stop him from deciding that a certain number is significant, and then going through the Bible and searching for all the phrases that appear that number of times, and then working backwards from there to decide which ones seem the most significant? I mean that that's not too far off from what he's doing. 
The other thing that he's doing, though, is uh, omitting information. So did you notice that I said the phrase born again appears three times in the King James, resurrection from the dead appears three times in the King James, and rise again appears three times in the King James New Testament? I don't know if you noticed. I noticed. No. So I used the Bible word search that I was using on the same printing of the King James that he was referencing to fact check him. And I looked up rise again in the entire King James, not just the New Testament. It's so great that you can use just like control F search function for the entire Bible. I'm sure that makes Bible coding much more accessible and democratized. I'm going to get to that. But guess what? Rise again appears 11 times in the entire King James. It only appears nine times in the New Testament, and that's what fits his need to make it fit with the number three somehow. Well, what's the significance of the number 11? Judgment and disorder. Oh, no. Yeah. So obviously that does not fit with the point that he's trying to make. If it had been 12 times in the entire King James, well, that's three times four, so that would still work. But because it's 11 times total, he's only included the New Testament appearances of Rise Again so that it still fits his point that he's trying to make. Well, are there any phrases that appear 16 times and then you could say this phrase appears 16 times and Rise Again appears 11 times, therefore 1611, therefore King James is the correct translation? Yeah, there's got to be something that appears 16 times. But that's the general idea. That's what that's what people are doing. You you could just like shoehorn stuff until you find something that fits. Mm-hmm. It's right. So you'd have to find something that says like my word or live forever or something like that that appears 16 times and then you put that with rise again which appears 11 times and then it would work. But shoehorning stuff to find something that fits is not so bad in my opinion. I think What I take a lot more issue with is the fact that he seems to have purposely obscured the two additional Old Testament appearances of Rise Again to make this fit. I think that's a bigger issue. So I want to look at one other number in the Hoggard Code, just so I'm representing his theories accurately. I gave you just about everything he had on the number three. I am not going to be able to give you everything he has on the number seven, because it would take the rest of this episode. But I'm going to go through a few of his claims here. So as we talked about earlier, the number seven is associated with divine perfection and completeness. It's also associated with the word of God because scripture is perfect and complete and purified seven times, etc., etc. So he's looking for patterns of seven or multiples of seven with phrases that talk about scripture or the word of God or something, some similar phrase. So it's like with Shakespeare, when you're looking for the iambic pentameter, this is... So the Ten Commandments were the first written word of God. They were written on stone tablets, and they first appeared in the 70th chapter of the Bible. So there's Uh... a seven. The phrase tables of stone appears 14 times in the entire scripture, which of course is seven times two. Well, there were two tablets, weren't there? Oh, wow. That's a good one. Hoggard didn't even yes. make that connection. And I could be I could be a Bible code guy. Uh, you could. Okay. 
So another thing that he pulls out for the number seven is one of the titles that's given to Jesus in the New Testament, which is the Word or the Word of God. This title for Jesus is found seven times in five verses, and one of those verses is 1 John 5, 7. Whoa. Oh, man. I tell you, Sadie, if I were high right now, my mind would be just like totally blown. Yeah, but the IFBs are high on Jesus and sleep deprivation 24-7. So it makes sense why this is appealing. So also, back to the number seven in the Hoggard Code, the phrase, the gospel of God, appears exactly seven times. Uh, scripture is often referred to as inspired or God-breathed. The word breath appears 42 times in the King James, 42 being six times seven. So the number of man, which is six times the number of God, which is seven, equals the number of times that the word breath appears in the King James, and God gave Adam the breath of life. Whoa. When we watch that Simpsons episode in which <laughs> Homer predicts the rapture, I thought that all of this multiplication plus minus stuff was a joke. Like that it was it was something that was made up for the Simpsons. No. And <laughs> no, it was not. It is mind-boggling to me that people take time out of their precious lives to come up with this stuff. <laughs> you and I, we could not make this up. If if we sat around and ate magic mushrooms for seven days straight we could not come up with anything as loony as this yeah probably not okay so you want to talk about multiplication though let's talk about a couple of these multiplication things so hoggard says the phrase children of israel appears 644 times in the king james which is seven times 92 I got a different count on this one. I got 684, which is not a multiplier of seven, but I could have had some apocrypha mixed into mine or he could have just made an honest mistake. Hoggard says, church appears 77 times, which is a multiple of seven. It is written appears 63 times, which is seven times nine. And God of Israel appears 203 times, which is seven times 29. Just for accuracy's sake, I also got a different answer on no. it is written. I got 80 times, which is not a multiple of seven. I don't know. Like, how do you know when to do multiplication and when to do addition or subtraction? Is there like an order of operations for Bible code? Is there like a, a Christian version of PEMDAS? Well, you do, you know, to do multiplication or addition or subtraction when the answer doesn't turn out to support the point that you want it to support, obviously. <laughs> I'm fairly confident that this Hoggard code is what I was getting bits and pieces of in Fundy chain emails in the early 2000s. But even if, as I suspect, there were other originators within the IFB proper, this is I, I chose to use this one as our example for this episode because this is so typical of the types of things that you would see from Fundy numerology. Can we do an episode on Fundy chain emails? Oh, absolutely. We have all kinds of material if I ever figure out how to get back into my old email address. If any of our listeners still have access to their old email address from 15 to 20 years ago, and don't mind going in and, and just looking to try to find like old chain emails. 
please forward them to us, but just make sure that you just forward the text and not the viruses that are attached to the chain emails. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so another type of biblical numerology. Are you ready? Hit me. So this leads into gematria, which is, and I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but it's the practice of assigning number values to letters and then adding up the values of the letters. If you ever wrote in code as a kid, like one is A, two is B, three is C, so on, it's essentially that. But then you add up the number values and manipulate them until you get to something cool. It's less used for prediction and more for a feeling of confirmation that scripture is true and perfect. Although I have seen this used to try to predict the Antichrist a lot. (laughs) So you'll add up all of the numbers in somebody's name, like all the numbers in Barack Obama. Uh, So, you know, B is two and then A is one. And then R is what, 18, I think. Yeah, R is 18. A is one, C is three, and you add that all up and then you divide it by something that makes it come out to 666. Ah, there it is. Yeah, so (laughs) the phrase number, so you'll do it in English and it won't come out to anything. So the phrase number of a man Barack Obama in English equals the value 1146. However, in Hebrew, supposedly it equals 666. But you have to add number of a man onto the front of it. Right. And then also in um, Elon Musk Grimes, apparently, according to this highly suspect website, (laughs) also equals 666. Uh, Pfizer, if you put two Fs in Pfizer, uh, equals 666. Uh, yeah, but that's it, a Pfizer only has one F in it. <laughs> Details. <laughs> no, uh, is a Elon Musk is a Elon Musk plan comes out to six six six. Prophecy comes out to six six six. Hitler, Hitler, Hitler works. L. Barack Hussein <laughs> Obama the second comes out to six six six. Wait, where does the L come from? <laughs> No, it's E-L, like this E-L, is... Barack Hussein Obama 2. Like L, like L Barto, yes. L Chapo. Oh, guess what else comes out to 666? What? Bill Gates descended into hell. Dude, these oh, people are they're just playing the mind anagrams. control agenda of CIA. Also, Thomas Cruise. Okay, the Tom Cruise one, I would, although his name isn't Thomas, is it? I it's don't know. Uh, Obama, the satanic guide. The Trick Alien Deception, Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared, The Alien Deception Trick, all of these come out to 666, supposedly in Hebrew, based on this one particular system. Tom Cruise's name isn't even, like, Cruise is only his middle name. Did you know this? His name is Thomas Cruise Mapother IV. Well, I put my name in, and... It comes up to my first and last name comes up to 483. So I guess I'm not the Antichrist. Well, I hope you're not the Antichrist. That would so. This is, this is like. You want to find out if you're the Antichrist? Yeah. uh, I'm putting your name into this website. Nope. You got 937. Try, try government name. Okay. Let me try your government, government name. That's weird to type because I never use it. Nope. You got 223. Ooh. In English, Gematria, your government name is 660. So you're almost oh, the close. Antichrist. Man, 
this is like this is so like they're really just trying and they're really just like yeah. So those are a few of the things that using Gematria can come out to having six 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 a number of six six six. There were like twelve pages of that. I only read about half of the first page. This is so like this is extremely chain email. This is the yeah. most chain mm-hmm. email. Okay, so we're gonna go back to something that I think is used more often in the proving the KJV space. The first verse of Genesis in Hebrew has seven words made up of 28 total letters, and seven times four is 28. So that's two sevens already. The number values of each of those 28 letters adds up to 2701. And if you, so 2701, if you reverse 2701, you get 1072. And then you add those two together, 2701 plus 1072 equals 3773. Whoa, threes and sevens, crazy. And get Mm. this, 2701 equals 37 divided, or 37 times 73. Whoa. 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 So in other words, people like to do a lot of ridiculous math with their scripture. This, this, oh my God. Wow. So these (laughs) these are just a few of the ways that numerology and numerological codes are used to try to prove the perfection of of a specific translation, the namely the King James, or are used to try to predict the future. And you've been very patient through those. I can feel that you want to get to the Bible code proper. So people who find hidden messages about Trump, about predicting the future, the date of the rapture, if that's something they believe in, I can feel that you want to get onto that. People who do Bible code and people who believe in the rapture. I mean, that's pretty, that Venn diagram is pretty much a circle. Uh, Yes, I would like to do an overview, but I'd also like to take the episode, like if we could do a a different episode and really do a deep dive into like Bible code in much greater detail, I would love to take a look at some specific examples of people doing this at a later date. That would be a lot of fun. Okay. So maybe for today, we can just explain the most common ways that it's done and pull out a couple of examples, and then we can dig in more at a later time. Sounds good. Okay. So when we're talking about this type of Bible code, what we're usually talking about is people who are reading way between the lines, often using some kind of numerology to find a message that's not just obscure, not just metaphorical, but actually secret. So one way that people think they discover these secret codes hidden in the Bible is starting with either a Hebrew text of the Old Testament or the English text of the Old and New Testaments, and they'll first remove all of the spaces So in punctuation. So it's just one long block of letters. From there, they will run a search, like a word search, to see if the word podcast appears anywhere in this text where each letter is exactly 100 carrier characters apart. So a P and then 99 more characters and then an O and then 99 more characters and a D. So they'll do that or they'll look for 
the word podcast where each character is a thousand characters apart or 666 characters apart or whatever value they're looking for. So the P might be in the, if it's a thousand characters apart, the P for podcast might be somewhere in Genesis chapter one. And then the O is like at the beginning of chapter two and the D is in the end of chapter two. That's kind of how that would turn out. So are they looking just in order or are they doing like, are, are they doing it like a word search? So it could be vertical or horizontal or backwards or up or down or diagonal or. So the method that I was reading about first is looking for the letters to appear in order a certain number of characters apart, either forward or backward. But there are definitely other methods as well. I have absolutely seen people do this like a like you are doing a word search. Like yeah, that's another way of doing it. <laughs> yeah, but not even like all the letters will be in like somebody will do and like over two down one over two down one over two down one like to see if they can find a word or i've seen them try to make words out of like only using the letters on the corner of the page mm-hmm. and, and or, or and, and do like a whole chapter and then try to solve them like they're doing the jumble yes and then they'll try to make a prophecy out of that yeah so those are other things that people do with this text Another method would be to put the letters in a grid, like a crossword, uh, not a crossword, like a word search, but then choose equidistant letters. So draw a straight line and then choose every fifth letter on that line. That would be one way to do it. Or another thing that people do is they use the equidistant letter system that I was talking about in the first place. And then once they find one word, they put the letters back into the grid and see what words intersect. So the P in podcast that's in Genesis chapter one, let's go see what word that P comes from. And if we put the text in a grid, what other words can we word search that are nearby? And then they'll try to make a sentence out of like the P and the words that intersect with it and the O and the words that intersect with that. And then they'll switch those words up and, and like, put them in different orders to see if they can make a coherent prophecy out of that. Whew. Yeah, it's a lot. (laughs) So in one example I saw, someone found the name Branham, B-R-A-N-H-A-M, and then that intersected with a word prophet. So now they're trying to figure out who Branham is and whether he's a true prophet or a false prophet. And that's where I take issue with this because it's still just a way to find what you're looking for. Of course, if you couldn't find anybody IFB enough to be named Branham and be a prophet, then you could just name your next kid Branham and raise him telling him that he's a prophet. That's certainly an option, yeah. So I looked for concrete examples to illustrate this. And it turns out that most people that use the type of Bible codes that we're talking about here don't publish how they got what they found in the Bible code. (laughs) Uh, Or at least don't publish it without you having to pay for it, which I thought was interesting. That says quite a lot. Mm -hmm. I can tell you a lot about the methods. I can't dissect a particular prophecy that somebody made to try to explain where they got it because they are not 
telling you where they got it. They're just saying, I found this in the Bible code. Believe me. So I want to point out, as we talked about earlier, the changes in the 1611, the changes from the 1611 authorized version of the King James to the 1769 printing were mainly in spelling and often affected the number of letters in a word. So if you're using this Bible code, how do you know you have... (laughs) Ah. Like, even if you are convinced that the King James is the perfect and only translation, which King James are you using and why? (laughs) Because they have drastically different numbers of characters. See, this th- the thing that stands out to me about this is that they will what what they will do is they will go and they will use the the Bible code to look for previous prophecies that may have been missed. So, like I said before, they will use the Bible code to go back and prove that nine eleven was predicted in the Bible, and then once they find this, they will do the scientific thing, which is carry this method forward. And then say, well, this is therefore now this is a cipher to try to decode the Bible and use it to predict other stuff with regards to the fate of the world and the fate of the United States. Now, if this all sounds familiar to you, it's because this is also exactly what QAnon does. Only instead of the Bible, they will it, it'll be a Q drop. Right. So for me, the question is, does this kind of Bible code hunting and does QAnon attract people because it's human nature, because people like a mystery? Thinking back to the media that we were talking about in the beginning of this episode, Indiana Jones, National Treasure, Da Vinci Code, those were and are popular for a reason, right? Yeah. People are still out there in real life trying to find D.B. Cooper or figure out who assassinated Kennedy or solve cryptos which I found out I can't do. <laughs> uh, I really, really gave that a solid shot when I was like 15 and man, uh, got humbled. <laughs> so does Q attract people because a lot of people like to solve a mystery because they like to feel like they're part of something? Or does Q attract people because they've been conditioned by evangelical Christianity to look for codes and prophecy and to expect the end of the world? You know how a couple of months ago there was the, the there's a true crime podcast proof. Um, I, I think most people who listen to our show will probably have, uh, be familiar with this story, but proof was able to drum up so much attention that those two men uh, uh, were released from being falsely imprisoned for murder. You remember this, right? No, um, I wasn't aware of this. You weren't aware of this. This was a big deal a couple of months ago. I know people that had been very much into that podcast for a while and they were in almost like I I described almost like a state of hysteria when the guys got released because they felt like they're like, yes, we were part of this. We were Mm -hmm. talking about this online. We were tweeting about it. We were posting about it on Instagram. We were sending emails and, and messages to the, uh, to, to the, the, the district attorneys and, and lawyers and, and people in these States. Um, I, I think it was, I think it was in, in Georgia. I'm trying to remember. I can't remember exactly, but they were like, they felt like they had been in on solving the mystery. And it's almost like the Bible code and QAnon are 
true crime for people who think that the COVID vaccine turns you into lizard people. Yeah. I, I think that I think that saying that QAnon attracts evangelical Christians because they've been conditioned to look for code, they've been conditioned to believe that prophecy is a real thing, and they've been conditioned to expect the end of the world is a valid and reasonable take. I just don't think it tells the whole story. I think it is that, but it is also the natural human inclination to want to be part of something. Well, I mean, that's their slogan is where we go one, we go all. And so you're all in it together. Well, the other thing I was thinking about with this is that the Bible code uh, slash QAnon thing very much draws on astrology and new age spirituality in that sort of sense. So, Right. But without naming those traditions. Right. So the Venn diagram of people who are into like, because if you're into if you're really into the new age spirituality thing, chances are there's a I mean, there's a decent enough chance that you're also possibly into conspiracy theories. Not not saying it's everybody or even most people, but we all know some of those people who are like into that thing. And then they're into the other thing because they don't trust the mainstream. Yes. And that's there is very much like a crunchy, all natural, organic, vegan, new age to QAnon pipeline. It's it's very real. It is very possible to be into the crunchy, organic, vegan, new age stuff and not fall into that rabbit hole. I know people who are very successfully navigating that uh, without falling into that. But there is a pipeline. It's that's a very real thing. Yeah, and so you combine that with when evangelical Christianity gets involved with that, which also exists. Like it's the the New Age spirituality plus Christianity. Okay, but do you know who we have covered on the podcast that is a great example of that? It's a it's a really uh, it's a deep cut from like summer of twenty twenty one. Summer of twenty twenty one. Um. So is it's 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 a deep cut. So it's not going to be J Rod. It's going to be... You want me to tell you? Is it Carissa Collins? No, but good good guess. Is it somebody in that sort of vein? No. Who is it? I was thinking of Kent Hovind's second wife, Mary Toko. Really? Yes. So she was a prominent Christian, like crunchy, all-natural, anti-vax minor influencer before she met Kent Hovind. That was her her life and her online persona before she met him. That's fascinating. But like I, it's it's I don't know if she's become a Q influencer yet. It wouldn't surprise me, but I also have hope that she wouldn't. I mean it's it's all like the same ecosystem though. Right. Is the I like there's people who like with the Trump thing people who believe that he is like ordained by god or that there he has like some magic spirituality like magic dust around him Mm -hmm. the i i don't know i don't know how else to to put that phrase Uh, but like yeah and that ties into a whole lot of lore and predictions non-religious type stuff that we don't have time to get into today um i have also seen people say that he is the messiah which <laughs> it's we finally found something equally offensive to me and you. 
So I, I did find in this research a lot of books and articles and YouTube videos proclaiming that they found Trump and elected in 2020 in the Bible Code. The thing is, it's not just the equidistant letter Bible Code that supposedly predicts Trump. And it's not just evangelical Christians and crunchy anti-vaxxers either. A, a rabbi named Shaul Gromer has a theory, which I've never heard before, about the weekly Torah portions predicting the outcome of that particular given week, even down to what events will happen during that week on what day. I don't get the prediction that he's strongly QAnon-related at all. He seems to be conservative or right-wing based on the way that he talks about things. I don't see a Q connection. But he predicted back in 2020 that the Torah portion for the week of the 2020 election uh, foretold that Trump would win. So this Torah portion, and this is more of just a a reading the story with an eye towards what from this story could happen in real life. So the Torah portion that was assigned to the week of the 2020 election includes the stories of Lot and his daughters escaping Sodom, then Abraham's wife Sarah being mistaken for his sister and being taken by a king into his harem, and then finally the birth and circumcision of Isaac. So according to Rabbi Gromer, the escape of Lot and his daughters is a prophecy about the desire of the Republican Party to keep Trump in office. Uh, Sarah being taken uh, by the king is a prophecy about the election hanging in the balance. But her eventual return to Abraham prophesies that Trump's office will be returned to him. In, in other words, that he will be reelected. The, the, where this gets really wild is the final part of the prediction. Uh, Rabbi Gromer said that the the end of this portion with the circumcision of Isaac is a prophecy about illegitimate votes being cut off. And this is why just because somebody is a rabbi does not make them a valuable or reliable source of information about what the Jewish people believe. Yes. <laughs> this is why, as I said earlier, it is important to get multiple sources of information. And this is also why, back 150 years ago or longer, if you only knew how to spell a word one way, it was a mark of low intelligence. <laughs> Man, yeah. Rabbi Gromer. I mean, look, I've met I've I've met Hasidic Jews who said that um the that that the Chabad Rebbe, you know him? No, I don't. Yes, Menachem Mendel Schneerson was the uh, or the the Lubavitcher Rebbe during much of the 20th century. I've, I've, and and he was so uh, groundbreaking in all of the mm -hmm. things that he that that he did. He was such an influential figure. I've met uh, 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 Chabad Jews who said that that they believed that he was the Messiah. Hmm. But that's... did they believe that there were particular prophecies in Scripture that pointed to that particular man? Well, the Messiah is something that there are prophecies about, but I don't know. So, like I, I I couldn't tell you because I haven't read about this in great deal, but I mm -hmm. I, I I don't. That's not like a mainstream belief. I don't right. believe, but like it's it's not a belief that's unheard of. I um I remember remember when I was in New York, and yeah, and I sent you a picture of a sticker that somebody had put on like a, a phone pole or something that said the Messiah has come, and it was mm -hmm. a picture of. It, it, that's that's who the picture on that was of oh. 
That was okay. it was a picture of the of 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 uh of Rabbi Schneerson. I think at some point we really need to talk about messianic prophecy because what I've realized is that so Christians believe that there are like I'm gonna have to pull a number off the top of my head, but I think it's over 700 messianic prophecies. But literally anybody opens their mouth and says that would be nice, and they're just like, "See, messianic prophecy." Right. I'm going to the store today to get some uh, bagels and coffee. Messianic prophecy, <laughs> because the bagels symbolize the bread of Jesus and the coffee symbolizes the blood of Jesus, uh, which reinvigorates <laughs> the people. Like that's that's how they f-ing get with these things. Like literally any character in any of the okay. stories, they're like. I just realized that whenever you try to use like Christianese, you sound like a really well-trained AI. like it's almost perfect but not quite (laughs) so like if i went to if if i went into an ifb church to try to see if i could pass as ifb um like i could Um, i could pull it off for like two minutes and then they would be like okay this tracks and then i'd open my mouth and say something and they'd just be like and then they'd start asking you like like whose ministry were you saved under and where did you go to bible college because they'd be suspicious I would say I went to Bible College at Crown College, and I was saved under uh, David Bryant Carpenter's ministry in uh, Mobile, Alabama. See that would that would work great because if it's if it's old school IFB, there's probably a lot of people still around who knew him. Yeah. So then they'd believe you. There you go. You got your cover story. If you ever need to infiltrate an IFB church. If I ever infiltrate an IFB church, I'm going to tell them that it was your dad that's whose ministry saved me. <laughs> please, please, <laughs> please do. I'm sure he'd be pleased. <laughs> so, okay. So what we're... Rest let's in go, peace. Let's go oh, back man, to I our episode. You, you are saying like one person or even one person who is a rabbi is not a valuable, like reliable source of information about what Jewish people believe because no one person is a fully comprehensive source on what Jewish people believe, right? Right. So there, and I think I really want to encourage listeners who are either currently Christians or who have a background in Christianity to understand that it is it's broad the way that Christianity is because there are Christians that are homophobic or believe QAnon, and those are parts of their faith and practice. There are also Christians who are LGBTQ or believe that their faith commands them to be good allies and believe that, they're, that a part of their faith and practice is voting for progressive political parties who are going to make life more equal for everyone there are Christians who believe that socialism is a part of their faith and practice and other religions are also not monoliths. <laughs> it's So it's two problems. One, people employ the no true Scotsman fallacy with wild abandon, wild abandon, but I see more and more that we think we can get away with treating minority groups or minority religions as monoliths by using phrases like, well, Jews believe X or Muslims believe X. And that's rarely accurate you know what we say we say two jews three opinions Um, right i also also i i just generally i feel like it's it's not a good idea to uh purport to understand a community until you spend significant time in their midst additionally i mean QAnon, as we know is basically it's it's essentially the satanic panic reborn and 
the satanic panic was just a warmed over protocols of the elders of Zion. And the protocols of the elders of Zion was a forgery based on medieval blood libel and a highly literal reinterpretation of the book of revelations that was then weaponized in order to fight the rise of communism and vilify the Jewish people. So Bible code being based on this idea of biblical literalism and QAnon, which has its roots in biblical literalism makes I mean, it makes sense that these two things would come together. Final question for the end of the episode. So once you come to the conclusion that the the King James isn't the perfect translation of God's word into English, now like now that we have newer translations of the Bible, they're more accurate. Is there like still a use for the King James? Like I know your personal history with this text is fraught because of your upbringing, but is it useful now for anything other than just as like a reference or as like a historical document? Are you asking for my opinion? Yeah. Okay. Just, just, just pers- like, I, I want to know. So my opinion is, I think there are translations that are more accurate in modern English. Not that it's not that the King James is inaccurate. It's just that it's archaic. And a lot of modern readers, including myself, sometimes are not prepared to deal with the archaic language of the King James. If I sit and read in the King James, I have to do it with a dictionary because there are words that have been purpose, their meaning has been purposely obscured by the IFB uh, or words that I just don't know once in a while. So I think that the only reason, the the only reason to that, you know, to say that something else is more accurate is because it's more accurate in the common vernacular now. I think that the King James is just as useful as Shakespeare. It's not the only accurate translation of scripture that we have, just like Shakespeare isn't the only poet and playwright. I think we've all learned, I've seen the academic community on social media working through this over the past year or so, and I'm sure it's been going on way before I joined the conversation, but how do we deal with these ancient (laughs) white men who were poets and playwrights when only white men could really be poets and playwrights? And how do we properly value their work while also studying poets and playwrights who were anything other than white men who made fantastic work that should be added to the lexicon of things that we study, the library of things that we study? So I think that, that dealing with the King James we is, is similar it's not the only accurate translation. It's not the only good translation, but it is still a good and an accurate translation. Yeah. I mean, because the language in the King James, it's iconic, just like Shakespeare. It's iconic. And people born in the 20th century, I think were probably the first English speaking Christians in centuries to not primarily or almost exclusively use the King James Bible as their English translation, right? Right. And I think that maybe the problem isn't education and maybe the problem isn't um, people being too lazy to look up archaic words. I think maybe we're just seeing language change in real time because anybody who grew up speaking English in school probably studied. You probably read Beowulf. I know I did. 
and you yeah. may have gotten an opportunity to read it in the the original way that it was written and then read it in something closer to Shakespeare's English and then read it translated into modern 20th century or 21st century English. And that's a really neat experience, right? To see how it, how the English language evolved over time. I think that we are still seeing the English language evolve over time. And that's, I don't think that's an issue or a problem or something wrong. The, the language is just doing what it has been doing for hundreds and hundreds of years. But I think we're at a point in history where reasonably educated average people cannot be expected to understand the language of the King James. It's hard for me to say that any particular modern translation is better than the King James because of my upbringing. But I don't have any problem saying that many of them are as good as the King James. For my own personal use, I don't personally ever see myself cutting out the King James or frequent usage of it out of my life. But that's primarily because I have so many passages memorized. I have huge chunks of Psalms and the New Testament permanently in my brain. I have chapters from all over the Bible memorized. So if I'm dealing with a passage that I'm familiar with in King James, I don't really get a lot of choice in the matter <laughs> because if I pick up a different translation to read that passage in a different translation, I'm still going to have the memorized version from the King James running through my mind at the same time. So I tend to lean into that. And if I want to look into or study something, I'm going to compare the King James with a reputable modern translation. And then I'm going to check a couple other modern translations that I'm less familiar with. And then if I still have questions, I'm going to pull up a Greek concordance to check it out there. I guess what I'm saying is I'm too close to the whole King James situation to get the full picture of its usefulness, but I don't think it's, personally, I don't think there's any reason to throw it out or quit using it. I just think it's better used in conjunction with translations in more modern language. That was very well put. I think, I just think the King James is like vanilla ice cream, right? It's better with some chocolate sauce on it. <laughs> It's just better as it's better as an addition to something else rather than being its own thing. Okay, yeah, like cuz vanilla ice cream as a side with chocolate cake or as a side with like pie is yeah. fantastic. But if you're going to eat vanilla ice cream by itself, it's not really the flavor that you want for ice cream. Personally. Yeah, you're 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 missing out on something that you could have if you were willing to combine it with something else. Okay, I got one last weird analogy in, so now we can be done with this episode. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode. Next week is the week when we will cover Ginger Duggar Vuolo's book, which comes out tomorrow. Um, Probably. I'll listen to the audiobook, which I'm just seeing here is uh, read by Ginger herself, so I will get to listen to Ginger narrate five hours of audiobook for me which will be good. Um, I'll listen to it at the gym and I'll write down anything that I think is interesting and then we'll talk about it on the episode. And that should be a lot of fun. And then, oh, man, I can't wait. Can I, I, I can't tell you guys what we have coming for Valentine's Day, but it's going to be very interesting and it's going to be very, 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 very entertaining. Um, but we do have a Valentine's Day special episode planned and a Valentine's Day Patreon special episode planned. And we're going to do both of those 
And it's it's uh, if you like our show, if you're a fan of our show, you can follow us on whatever your podcasting app or platform of choice is. Hit that follow or that subscribe button. You can join our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast, where we are going to have, as I said before, a special episode for Valentine's Day. But there's also bonus content, including an extended and uncensored version of most of our episodes. And sadie's writings so if you want to know what a cult survivor thinks of the handmaid's tale you can go there and you can find that there uh you can follow us on social media follow us on facebook and instagram at leaving eden podcast on twitter at leaving eden pod sadie your socials yeah and you can follow me on instagram at sadie carpenter music on twitter at hell yeah sadie and on tiktok at sadie carpenter one all of which are places that i continue to employ weird and off-base analogies that actually kind of work. And you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. You have a great day. Bye-bye. But old rolling river of time Healed me in too many days No regrets, no Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.